but I didn't know where to go. I was sort of in um, purgatory. And then, you know, then comes my dad about January of 2019. And he says, bud, do you want to speak to a class, you know, speak to students, speak to parents about your experience? Uh, my first thought was no, no way. I, I think it might have been that. your second and third thought. Yeah, no. it might have been, you know, I might have given him that for a week because uh, I really didn't feel like sharing that story to strangers uh, at that point. Didn't really even want to share that story with people that I know. Um, but then I did one and another and another. And uh, the pre presentations, you know, having the chance to present to students and parents, but mostly students, has been the absolute silver lining of all this for me. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, we're switching it up a little. We have a father and son duo, Tim and Ryder Davis. Their journey into the mental health space began when Ryder was diagnosed with bipolar one disorder in February of 2018. Their more general mental health journeys began at birth, as all of ours did. While Ryder was bravely taking on a condition he neither deserved nor asked for, Tim began attending family support groups and classes offered by NAMI Westside LA, the local affiliate of the national organization. NAMI not only provided Tim with much needed support and education, but it also provided a calling. Now serving as NAMI Westside LA's senior program director, Tim has spearheaded the expansion of their family and school programs, which include offering mental health presentations to students and families about the importance of prioritizing mental health and learning how to be good friends to those of us struggling with mental health conditions. Ryder's recovery has been an inspiration to his family and friends, and as one of NAMI Westside LA's incredible youth slash peer presenters to students and parents throughout the LA community. Tim and Ryder have been given countless presentations together led workshops on communication, and continue to enjoy having honest conversations around any number of relevant, complicated topics, even when they don't always agree. Thank you both so much for joining me. I am so excited <clears throat> for this conversation. But before we begin, how are you both really doing today? Bud, you want to take that one first? Because uh, I'm actually yeah. really curious to hear the answer. Uh, sure, yeah, I'm back in Boston where I go to school at BU. I'm a junior. I uh, just got back yesterday from a nice weekend home, and I actually had a pretty good day. Uh, so I'm actually really doing pretty well. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank me, you very much. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I love, I love, I really love the question, how are you really doing? Um, and I, I, I get the sense, Francesca, that you actually care about that. I answer. do. Um, so that's pretty great. Oh, look at Ryder. Just, just... <laughs> He's already he's already getting annoyed. Um, well, okay. So so to be really honest, I am feeling kind of overwhelmed. Uh, there is a lot going on um, in our Nami verse, and um, and I love my job, and I really do feel like it's a calling. Uh, but there's it's just sort of gotten bigger and bigger, and our affiliate has grown a lot in the last three and a half years, and we have an amazing team um, led by our executive director Aaron Ryan. Uh, we have a new program director who has started with us uh, three and a half years ago as a UCLA intern and is now risen through the ranks. She supervises our peer programs. I think you know her, Elizabeth Stevens. And we're we're cooking with gas, but 
there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, to can finish that metaphor. There's a lot of burners, a lot of things on a lot of stoves. And um, I'm trying to run around. We're all trying to run around, make sure everything is getting cooked properly and we're not getting burned in the process. So what was, I guess, I guess, I guess I'm feeling good. I love, love the opportunity to have these conversations. I've been looking forward to this all day and I literally was able to just get off a phone call about two minutes before we started here. So I take a look. I, I think I needed that breath. <laughs> well, thank you for being so honest. I think we really need to normalize loving your job and yet allowing yourself to feel overwhelmed and recognizing that. I think a lot of people, when they feel overwhelmed and they love what they do and they work so hard for what they do, they kind of feel like they can't share that because that's not right. If I love what I do, I can't complain about being overwhelmed or I can't talk about it. I can't cope with it because if I love what I do, it has to be great. It has to be perfect all the time. And as someone who's also been running through that period of being overwhelmed, I can tell you it's not easy and being able to recognize it and talk about it is so important. So I think you kind of really just helped normalize it for so many people. So thank well, you for that. I, and I just want to say in hearing myself say those words, I, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I got to take a breath. I have to slow down. I, this is uh, something we talk about. Ryder's an amazing presenter. Uh, one of the, the um, challenges of, of presenting over Zoom is staying focused even when you're not talking and, and you know, presenting an engaged face, even when your dad is starting to bore you with one of his long-winded answers. So, All right. Well, with that, let's jump into Ryder's mental health journey. So in 2018, you were diagnosed with bipolar one disorder. How old were you at that time? I was 18. I just turned 18. So up until that point of getting that diagnosis, how was your mental health? What were you experiencing? And did you ever feel like maybe you were crazy or something was wrong? Like, what was that like for you? Mental health was not something I ever thought about. Not something I considered to be important or <clears throat> really put any time or effort into. I definitely uh, abused drugs and alcohol while I was in high school, but I thought it was normal and I didn't think it was anything to worry about. And, um, you know, something like bipolar disorder of that, you know, importance, I really thought of as people who were losers and who didn't, you know, weren't able to accomplish anything and sort of serve no uh, role in society. And uh, I, yeah, I had a tremendous amount of stigma towards people with mental health conditions, mental illnesses, if you prefer that okay. term. But yeah, I had a lot of stigma and it, <laughs> I never thought, I swear to God, I never thought this was gonna happen to me, but it happened. And so, you know, the journey began. So when you got that diagnosis, how did you, get that diagnosis? Did you go to a mental health professional? Did you go to your doctor? What made you reach out for that support to be able to get that diagnosis? Uh, well, I've told this story now <clears throat> hundreds of times uh, to schools across LA County, but I'll give you a little, uh, you know, shortened version. Uh, essentially, I had what was later determined to be a manic episode, kind of out of the blue, a uh, couple months into 2018, my senior year of high school. And I didn't know what it was. My parents didn't know what it was. My friends didn't know what it was. But I was experiencing a lot of intense symptoms, uh, you know, rapid speech, 
reckless spending of money, not really sleeping, rude to family and friends, you know, the whole night pretty much. But I didn't know what it was and, and neither did, you know, my support group or my, the people who I'm, whom I spent the most amount of time with. But eventually went to my school counselor. He told me I was having a manic episode. I was like, I don't know what that is. But then we went to the hospital, mental health hospital. And it was there that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Ryder, can can you let Francesca know how did how did it even come to your counselor's attention? Yeah, so a couple of my friends actually went to my school counselor and they said Ryder needs help and we don't know how to help him. And four years later I remain really grateful for those friends. That is so amazing that you had friends who recognized that you needed help and they were willing to speak up for you because a lot of people really back away from their friends when they see they're struggling, specifically with mental health. A lot of people are like, I don't want to get involved, so I'm just going to kind of creep away and let them do their thing. Something's wrong with them. They can figure it out on their own. Can I just add one quick little wrinkle to that? Like these friends, I think were freaked out and Ryder, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they were freaked out and they didn't know how to deal with them. So they actually told their parents and and one of one of their parents called Ryder's mom. And so that was our first tip that like, oh, people at school are noticing because we were noticing. Well, I think you were probably going to ask what our my experience was. I mean, we were definitely noticing odd behavior, but we we again like Ryder was saying we had no mental health education we had all we thought is that like he seemed very elevated and it, it, on some sort of stimulant so that's we thought he was doing drugs and that we, he, his mom and I also uh, divorced um, thank you for sharing about your own your own background and and we'd been we got divorced when Ryder was eight so he'd been living with that fact for a while but we you know his mom and I were being relatively peaceful co-parents at the time, but we were communicating that week that turned out to be the week he was having a manic episode because we knew something was going on and we both thought it had to do with drugs. And um, that was, we, you know, that's, that was our sort of main focus is like, we got to find out what drugs he's taking and we got to, you know, we got to stop it. I also, at that point, because he had just turned 18, his bank account, thank God, was attached to my bank account. So I also, I, I kind of, we, we saw that he was spending money on a lot of stuff. And um, so I did check the bank account and I noticed that it was starting to drain pretty quickly. And I was able to sort of cut off the rest of that kind of spending. But again, that's, that was just a very superficial response to what was happening. Um, it was more like addressing the symptoms without having any idea about the cause. So thank, I mean, I'm so grateful to these friends. Uh, You know, to your point, Francesca, these friends, that was the extent of their involvement. They completely pulled away. They wouldn't talk to me. And I am still, yes, dad, I'm not friends with these people anymore, but they were my, they were my best friends at that point. And again, asked, I'm very grateful to them for what they did, but they immediately pulled away as soon as I, you know, as soon as I got diagnosed, really. I think it is incredibly hard for the friend. I have had to put myself now, years later, in the position of the friend, of the people who were trying to be there for me, you know, and they didn't know how. Uh, And friends that I am now, I've now, you know, through time, gotten really close again with, they pulled away. You know, my best friends, then and now. 
I, they did not speak to me. They did not text me or, or call me or come over. Uh, and it just speaks to how difficult and misunderstood mental health is, especially when you're a teenager. You know, I'm really happy that you um, continued on and talked about that because I remember when I was really struggling and I think it was right after I got out of the psych ward, I had someone who was my favorite person in the entire world, my best friend who I was just so lucky to have in my life. And her and I didn't really speak anymore. She was like, you need serious help and pulled out of my life. And at that point, she was really the only person that I felt like I had left because I had just lost my grandfather and my uncle who were two main forces in my life. And I remember how terrible it felt every single day, questioning why I wasn't good enough, why my struggles made me less important. What was that like on your end? Did you ever have those kind of questions in your mind? First of all, I'm incredibly well put there about like, how did my struggles make you being, you know, whatever friend this is, or you're thinking about, how did they make you, you know, detach just because I'm going through something. And I always thought back then, I thought, oh my God, if, if X and Y, if they were going through what I'm going through, I would be there every step of the way. But I don't know that. In fact, I don't know that at all. And the behavior that I was exhibiting through a manic episode was really alienating. And I said some really horrible things to everybody in my life. Uh, and I was completely out of control. You know, I was, a, uh, uh, was not at the wheel at that time, so to speak. So in the moment, 18 years old, sitting in my room, staring at the ceiling for weeks, I thought I'm such a loser and, you know, they don't want to be my friend because I'm a loser. But I put them through a lot before I got diagnosed, before I went to the psych ward. I put all, all, all my friends, you know, that went to my high school and stuff through a lot. So looking back with the, uh, you know, glasses of slightly older age, I'm 22. But looking back, I can realize now that they were doing the best they could. And even the friends those two friends that went to my school counselor, I don't talk to anymore, but I know that they were doing the best they could. And I cannot ask, or I could not ask for any more of them. So. I love that outlook. Thank you so much for sharing it. And the way you put it, because it's so true that we can't expect people to be there for us, just like we think we would be there for them or the way we have shown up for them. And that was something that I struggled with a lot. It took me a long time to realize that just because you're there for someone else doesn't mean that they're going to show up for you. And it doesn't mean that they have the ability to, because we're all going through our own things and we have to be able to recognize that. But now I want to switch over to you, Tim. So going back and looking at your son's experience, you know, before the diagnosis, I know you said that you noticed some odd behavior and you noticed the spending. What were like maybe the three main behaviors that you noticed that maybe a parent could look out for? Um. Well, okay, in that immediate week or 10 days leading up to his hospitalization, uh, yeah, it, talking talking very fast. So rapid speech, um, got got by on very little to no sleep. Um, he, he, he was claiming to get sleep, but his mom, who he was living with at the time, said that she heard him up all night. So 
we knew if he was sleeping, it was only one or two hours a night. He was leaving the apartment. He was going out. We, we didn't know what exactly he was doing. And I don't know that to this day we know exactly what he was doing. Uh, but we did also notice that the bank account getting drained. So, so reckless spending, like he was talking about, rapid speech, staying up all night. And yeah, I mean, frankly, he and I have always had kind of a combative dynamic, but it was, it got intensified exponentially during that week. And I remember having these conversations with him just where we just, we would get elevated. And actually, mania is, is Ryder, I worry that he's going to get mad at me for saying this, but there is something a little contagious to it. Now, I know that I wasn't experiencing the same kind of mania that he was, but when you are engaging with someone in a manic episode, it, it, it elevates everybody's intensity. And so I, because I didn't know what I was dealing with, I just kept ramping up with him and that didn't do anybody any good. So, and I, I'm fortunate enough to give these presentations, not only to students in schools, but also to parents. And so I love being able to share this information because again, if I'd known four years ago, what I know today, we could have gotten Ryder help sooner. I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't have imagined, frankly, we, we, you don't think we could have gotten you help sooner? I mean, I think we did pretty well, but, yeah. but you know, we did wait. It, it really wasn't until his friends reported his behavior to the counselor that he was diagnosed. And I think, frankly, if honestly, Ryder, we could have gotten you help much sooner earlier in that in that week, I think, you know, if you if you disagree, fine. But that's and by the way, I don't say that to beat myself up only only to really share this information with other people so that if they see their kids exhibiting similar behavior, they will be able to act sooner than we did. Um, and it's, and it's a constant learning journey too. And we don't have to get into this if you don't want, but you know, I took him to the airport the other morning at four in the morning, which would be difficult for anybody, any 22 year old, but for someone, you know, with bipolar disorder who maybe didn't sleep as much as he normally would have liked to, I think it was difficult for him and it was difficult for me. And we, we started to get a little escalated and I don't think it was because of mania or anything, but I, I was not proud of the way I handled myself. And this is less than two days ago. So with all the information I have and the education I've gotten, the support I've gotten, I'm still a flawed human being. Is that, I know that's not a newsflash to Ryder, but the, but the fact is I, I also like being able to admit it and not beat myself up over it. So. You brought up so many amazing points that I really want to touch on. First of all, about how interacting with someone dealing with mania can really escalate your levels because a lot of times it is a very terrifying situation because you don't know why they're behaving the way they do. If they are yelling or screaming or very irritated, you're a lot more likely to respond the same way. When If someone's screaming at you, you're very likely to scream back. It's it's okay to forgive yourself for that. But actually, I, I, you know, part of the mission is to educate people so that they don't have to scream back. And again, no, but no, I'm not, I don't want to shame anybody or blame anybody if that's how they react. But certainly in my better moments, if, if I'm around somebody, even someone I love, like my son who is escalating in my better moments, I'll just absorb it. And this is like, this is what I learned from this amazing teacher, Sharon Dunas, who is our, also our, the president of our affiliate. Uh, Sharon was the teacher in the first NAMI family to family class I took. 
And I remember her talking about having um, a loved one with a mental health condition that was causing mania too. And she just learned to say, yeah, you're right. I'm a really, I'm a terrible mom. I'm terrible at this. And, and it's not being condescending. It's just, it's sort of, um, if you heard of the, the uh, boxer uh, Muhammad Ali, does that name ring a bell? He had a strategy called rope-a-dope where he would get on the ropes and he would just sort of absorb the other fighters' blows and let them kind of tire themselves out. I don't really know if that's the right metaphor here or not, but that is what I channel when I'm feeling when I'm feeling better about myself and not feeling defensive or taking it personally. So that if, for instance, if Ryder is coming at me in my better moments, I can just take it. And I don't have to say anything condescending. I just, just be like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay, well, maybe we don't have to talk about this right now or something like that so that I really don't escalate. And that really does help. When I can do that, it helps him. And I will tell you, I've seen him do that with me because sometimes what happens is he'll get me going and then he realizes, nope, okay, he has to be the bigger man and he'll calm himself down. And I also want to give him some props. The other day after I dropped him off at the airport and there was not a hug goodbye. It was, it was, not, it was not a loving goodbye that I would have wanted. Uh, he texted me, he texted me, I guess, going through security. He goes, Dad, he goes, I'll talk to you on Francesca's podcast, but that's it. Then we're shutting it down for a couple of weeks. I don't want to talk to you for a couple of weeks. And I really respected that. Like he was setting a boundary and he was taking care of himself. And then he called me from his layover in Philadelphia and we, we, you know, kind of apologized and, and made up and we've been, we're, we're, but you know, like we've learned how to fly through turbulence now and land the plane gently. What do you think, buddy? Am I, do you not agree? Well, no, no. I mean, just you, that was yesterday. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Well, we're keeping was, it fresh was, here, was, right? Yes, yes, that was. This is real time, Francesca. Okay, Don't... no, I know, but it, the way you were describing it sounded like it was even last week or over the weekend. No, that was yesterday, and I think I'm not a parent, so maybe my opinion is is very uh, uneducated. But I think it's really hard. I know from my own parents, it's really hard to counter that mania or counter depression, even. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about depression because that's what I've been dealing with. I haven't dealt with any manic episodes since 2018. But the depression, you know, both of my parents, especially my dad, who's a, about, a, about as positive a human being that uh, has ever lived. So I'll just, I'll feed him, you know, my own negative self-talk. And he, he just pushes back with positivity. And um, I really appreciate those moments when he's not condescending, or my mom's not condescending, because they both can be, especially you, but it's really nice to just be heard. And, and I think that can really extend to a friendship as well, where if your friend is coming at you, particularly with that depressive energy, you know, I suck and you hate me and I hate me, all that, um, it is really good just to listen. Just to listen, you know? Not even to offer any feedback or advice i think a lot of times people think they need to give uh advice no you don't <laughs> i think it really is effective when you just listen and listen from the heart so um I now i will now i will listen as my dad goes on for the next no i'm not i'm gonna just one i want to respond to that positive comment because i've really learned like yes i do have kind of a positive hopeful nature but it's it is completely a disconnect with with Ryder 
when he's he, when he's sharing something sad or depressing or or, or a, a, like a like expression of his depression, and I counter it with some positive game plan, there's no connection there. Then I'm up here and he's down here and he doesn't have a dad who's who's in the trenches with him. So like again, that's that's the challenge for me. And I'm and I'm hearing you, Ryder. I'm hearing and I'm glad we're on a podcast now that I'm going to get to listen to later and just get this drilled, continually drilled into my brain because as Ryder knows, I am a slow learner, but I do learn. Just takes me a little more time sometimes. Uh, well, just quickly before we kick it back to our great hosts, very patient listening host, but I will say, Dad, I think you'll like this. It made me think, you never really said in the trenches before, it made me think about this whole journey. Uh, dude, we're not in the trenches together. You built the trench for me to get in. Maybe you're not always in there with me, but you built it. You, you dug out. You dug it out. So your work with NAMI has set me up in an unbelievably uh, good way. So it's awesome. I'm tearing up. That was so cute. All right, I want to say that my dad is the exact same way, first of all, with the feeding the positivity. If I'm like going off on um, negative self-talk like this happened probably a couple hours ago, but I was like, nothing I do works and just going off. It's like, I'm not good enough. I'm failing. And my dad's like, just all up here with these affirmations and so positive. And I'm like, I need you to just be sad with me for a minute. So I feel that. And I want to say thank you for correcting me because the way I was speaking, what I should have said was that it is a normal human reaction to respond with yelling when someone's yelling at you, but, and it's okay to forgive yourself. But learning those tools to not react that way and respond that way is very, very important. So I want to thank you for correcting me because I did misspeak. And then I want to go back to Ryder. So during that experience of the manic episode and then going to the hospital, did you stay overnight in the hospital? And what was your experience like with going to the hospital? Uh, Well, first off, yes, I did. I was put on a 72-hour hold. Um, and so quickly I'll say this, you know, it's great being on a forum like this because it's a lot longer form, obviously, than I go and I talk for about 10 to 12 minutes to schools. <clears throat> and honestly, recently, like the last year or so, I don't really talk about this experience. So yes, I would love to talk about it as hard as it was. So yeah, literally, I mean, I got diagnosed, um, and about an hour or two hours, you know, a couple hours later. They strapped me to a gurney, you know, into the ambulance and off to Chinatown. Uh, I know nothing against Chinatown, but because it was in that sort of area, a lot of my fellow psych orderlies were off the street. And so me, pretty sheltered, pretty privileged. Dad, you can counter all this later, but I believe I was extremely sheltered and privileged coming from the west side in a private school. Suddenly, I'm in a psych ward with a bunch of people who are, you know, continually on the street, back in the psych ward, on the street, back in the psych ward. So three days, uh, you know, felt like three months or three years even. I was put on medication there. Uh, medication has been such a big part of my recovery. But at the time, it really sucked because, you know, you might understand this a little more than most people. But I was way up here. I was so elevated. And they put me on a lot of antipsychotics. Uh, as well as a mood stabilizer. So that brought me crashing down. And uh, one anecdote that I might look at as funny now, four years later, but in the moment was not funny. 
um, they make you line up for to take your meds. You know, they make you like prisoners. And a uh, fellow behind me, you know, he's probably about 50 something. He, as I reached for the cup to take my meds, he licked my hand. Um, and it was not great, you know. Uh, I also had a roommate or, you know, roommate, cellmate, who at night would sing and sing and sing loud. And part of the, you know, I was really there to get some sleep. I really needed sleep. I was probably that seven day episode. I maybe had six or seven hours of sleep total. So I really needed to sleep and this guy's singing. So then they put me into a room that was all metal, uh, ceiling, walls, floor, metal. The bed was just a metal block in the middle of the room. No windows, no windows at all. And uh, I was in there for a couple of days. And the whole time I'm thinking, you know, it's, this is, my life is over. It's over. You know, I'll never, I'll never get to college. I'll never get a job. Um, I'll never be able to show up for my family and friends in the way that I had had, that I had previously. So um, the psych ward is a very difficult place. That's where I'll leave it. But I think if I hadn't gone and I hadn't seen with my own eyes and felt with my own body how bad it could get, right? Like, if I don't take my meds, if I don't take very good care of myself, this is where I'll be. Uh, that is a, a fear and a, uh, yeah, really just a fear that I still live with today that helps me take care of myself. So that was my experience. I want to thank you for being so honest and open. Um, first of all, that does not sound like a fun or great experience at all. And I'm really sorry you went through that, but I'm so thankful to have you have gone through that so you can talk about it because first of all, I am a huge, huge advocate for reform in our mental health care for psych ward specifically. The medication, amazing. The um, support they offer, the safetyness, 100%. It is so needed. But being in a dark room, a metal room is not very helpful. And I think a lot of people just need to know what it's like on the inside. I remember I also came from private school, very sheltered life. And my first night, I was in a glass room with someone who was um, kind of detoxing from drugs. And I had never been in an experience like that before. And it was an older man. And I'm this tiny little girl, terrified out of my mind. And I just am so grateful that someone else out there understands that I'm not alone in it. And people listening who have gone through that too understand that they're not the only ones. And that we're talking about it because we need to have these conversations so that change can happen. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Tim, on your side, having a son in the psych ward, what was that like for you? Well, Ryder, sometimes I'm sorry, he doesn't love it when I talk about it, but it was now, and also I did experience a really difficult trauma as a child. When I was 11, I saw my mom get killed by a taxi in, right in front of me when I was, we were walking down the street in New York City. So. Like I have that as a reference point for trauma. This was worse. Seeing my son getting getting handcuffed to a gurney in an emergency room, getting wheeled out, helpless, undeserving, terrified, was worse is all I can tell you because I had, I was 54, 55 at the time. And so I had a lifetime of 
you know, adult experiences to, and you know, um, you don't know what you don't know. So at 11, I'm not, again, I'm not saying, you know, it's weird to compare traumas, but that's how, honestly, seeing you, Ryder, getting wheeled out of that out of that ER, you know, on your way to a psych ward that I didn't know anything about, it was one of the most terrifying, traumatizing moments in my life. And no, not even one of, the, the top. And, you know, I'm actually in trauma therapy right now, and that is certainly something that I, that I talk about. And the two are related, right? Because it's sort of like this random thing that has happened to someone you love, like this random, awful, violent, terrible thing thank God Ryder is still with us. But you know, the, the, the experience at the time was, I thought his life was over. And I thought my life was over. I mean, I really like, and I, I could summon tears pretty quick, easily here. Cause like that is, that was a, a ground zero moment for me. Oh, and I also want to say like his, his mom and I, we were convinced that having him placed on this psychiatric hold, it's called a 5150 for those of you who don't know, uh, that the, three-day uh, psychiatric hold, we were convinced that that was the best option available to us because we knew we couldn't take care of him. And we knew, what, based on what we were told, that he would be safe and cared for for at least three days. And, and um, they also told us that visiting hours were from seven to eight. And in my distressed crisis brain, I heard that as seven in the morning to eight at night. So, and his mom thought that thought the same as well. So we just thought we were going to divide up the day, carve it up into two, six, seven hour shifts. Well, of course it was seven to eight. It was one hour, seven to eight at night. And so when I found that out the next morning, um, and he, I, I got in my car and I started speeding downtown towards Chinatown and I was going to break him out. And I, that was my plan. I mean, I knew that was the only reasonable recourse. Again, this is crisis brain. And thank God for my dear friends, Matt and Paige, because I called them and I, I was crying and, you know, just out of my, literally feeling out of my mind, out of my body. And they were like, no, Tim, no, you can't do that. These people are taking care of your son as best they can right now. You don't want to make enemies of them. And um, I did sort of they, they they talked me off that particular ledge and I, I did show up there, but in a more conciliatory frame of mind. And actually they let me up. I showed up at eight or nine in the morning at way before visiting hours and they let me up to see him. And I don't know if you remember that, but I did, I came up and I gave him my shoes cause he, I gave him my shoes, but they, we had to take the laces out and, and I gave him a book. I had a, a copy of uh, catcher in the rye, which I don't know if that was the best. I don't know if that was the best book to give him, but it's all I had. And um, he actually I, I didn't read it. <laughs> no, he didn't read it. He didn't read it, but he did scribble on it in crayon, kind of these mantras to himself over the next three days. Like it was pretty, pretty sweet and amazing. Um, so that was the experience of like, and then, and then we also we've got a lot of family. Ryder is a beloved figure in our family, and people mobilized, and people we had trains of people showing up every night between seven and eight to see him, and they would have to after the second night they were like, look, we can't have everybody up, and then we would we would take shifts coming up the elevator to visit him. Well, thank you so much for sharing the 
parent's perspective, I think that when I have people on, I usually have the person who's going through its perspective and I don't get to hear the family member's perspective. And it's something I've never asked my parents and feel like I should now on what was going through their minds and how it impacted them because we forget that our loved ones are also impacted. And being able to validate what they went through as well is very important because in the middle of a mental health crisis, it does our world is falling apart and it does feel centered around us and recognizing that other people also just have gone through it as well, I think is very, very important. So building off of that though, Tim, when, so your son's in the psych ward now and it's this major trauma and you're going to visit him. What is one thing that you wish you knew before he went into the psych ward about the psych wards and one thing that you learned afterwards that you would like to share? Well, it's a great question, Francesca, and it's a hard question because, again, psych, not all psych words are the same. And one thing that I do try to coach our presenters on is I don't want to turn it into a scary horror movie version for people. I mean, I know that there are some really scary, difficult experiences that await people there in, in any psych ward, uh, especially when you're just you know, if you're young and you're, you're the other thing about Ryder is he had just turned 18. So he was in an adult psych ward, right? And, and uh, so that I think made things a lot more difficult for him uh, because everybody was just sort of like he was describing older and, you know, had had more difficult uh, life experiences than he had. But I guess one thing is my, fr like, as my friends convinced me, like, th these people, they're your allies, they may not be your chosen allies, but they're who they're who you're, go they're who you're going into battle with, this is your team. So make the best of it. And, and then, and then I think his mom, and I really give her a lot of credit, she's, she's been an incredible parent, not just co parent, she's been an incredible parent to Ryder, completely apart from me. Um, has also been very gotten very involved in NAMI, and you know we haven't talked much about NAMI, but NAMI does really address the whole family system, and that's what I, that's what was so important to to us as a family. Ryder has a little sister, who yeah, no little sister. I, I was I, only I, going to say, and I love where you're going, but you're going to ten minute land. All I'll say is, what was one thing you learned, and one thing that you wish you had known about the psych ward. But that's, I, that's, listen, no, that's no, a, not, that's, not, not, not chill, chill, chill. What did you learn? What did you wish you knew? It, it, and honestly, I'm only uh, repeating your question, Francesca, because it's a really good question. And it's a good question. You're getting okay, it next, I, by I, the way. Right yeah, go, yeah. Let's see. Let's see how you do, bud. I'm sorry that I don't have these answers ready. Well, no, all fully I really paid. like questions like that. Yeah, because then I can answer that without. Well, you know something, uh, Jessica. Can we come back to me? Because maybe that'll give me a little more time to come up with just a crystallized. No, I, I'll just I'll I'll say a couple things, but the eighteen having just turned eighteen piece of it, because I wanted to tie that in with something you said, Francesca, about reform, about reforming these institutions, and um, a place that can take an eighteen-year-old. I had just I was eighteen in like a month, you know, and put them with senior citizens. And put them with people who have been in these sorts of institutions for like 50 plus 60 years is a really is a recipe for disaster. And another thing I'll say is uh, the less that those places can feel like prison, the better. 
Um, I won't go too deep into this, but I actually went to a different type of psych ward, uh, a voluntary one, you know, a quote unquote voluntary. It's not like I ran in there, please take me, but it wasn't a hold. It wasn't a forced hold. And uh, this one was in Pasadena, a um, little different than Chinatown, but uh, there were still, there was still that group of people, you know, who are really hurting and want you to hurt. Uh, but the great thing about this place, that, that my second, you know, hospital stay, was that they were separated. So initially I was put into a place and I was called every slur in the book, most of which do not apply to me. Uh, and I was had food thrown at me. And they said, okay, well, we got to take this guy out of here. And they put me into a place which was much better suited to my needs and my struggles. And they had a piano. You could walk outside, get, get some sun. Uh, and unfortunately... This place was very expensive. And so I'll leave it at this, but that those that uh, dichotomy, right? I went to the psych ward in Chinatown, had a really horrible time. Went to this one in Pasadena. It was, it was no walk in the park. It wasn't Disneyland, but I felt supported and I felt heard. Um, and I met some really great doctors and I met some really great people who I wish I had kept in touch with. I didn't. Uh, and that dichotomy, which one of which was of course covered by insurance otherwise nobody would be there and one of which was had a carried a really hefty out-of-pocket charge and i wish and i hope one day in my life that i can start to merge those and hopefully provide a place where people can go without paying you know what you would pay to stay in a five-star resort uh and still give people the support that they deserve right like i've I'm starting to get into my dad territory where it's been out uh, but <laughs> I have received some unbelievable opportunities in my recovery. I've, I've gotten probably the two best psychiatrists in LA County for what I'm doing, maybe even California. I've gotten all these treatment opportunities and opportunities to speak with people. Uh, and a lot of those opportunities, or really all of those, are not given to everybody. And the people that I saw in Chinatown, as scary as they were and as uncomfortable as they made me feel, I can guarantee you that they did not get those kinds of, kind of opportunities. And the people you see under the bridge and the people you see in tents begging for change, they didn't get those opportunities. And I'm not even trying to generalize, but I, I'm pretty sure of that. So, yeah, I really love that you brought up reform because it's super important, really, really uh, vital. So thanks, Francesca. Of course, and I agree. And that's one of my biggest missions with inspiring my generation is to change that because I was the same way. I had access to any therapy or treatment option that I wanted and needed. And it never occurred to me before going into the psych ward that people couldn't afford medical care. Like that thought never occurred to me. Therapy was not a luxury to me. That was if I needed it, I got it. And seeing how many people couldn't afford to be in this system and they couldn't afford the ambulance bill. They couldn't afford to continue medication when they got out, they couldn't afford the bill that they were gonna get, really broke my heart. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And going back to what you said, when you went to the second facility, how you felt supported. If you, um, I know when you are involuntarily put into a psych ward, you don't really get to choose where you go. I know that, firsthand experience. But when you do have that ability, research different places. I just, anyone who's listening, please know that you can research and find out what options are available because some places are a lot better than others. A lot of times that goes to the funding from the facility or from the state. So just a great tip. If you are going voluntary, do some research. There are a lot of so many amazing psych words and doctors out there to help you. 
but I really want to go back and get Tim's answer now. Did you have some time to think? Well, first of all, I thought I was doing an okay job. I did say the one thing I said is treat these people as your teammates, not as your adversaries, the people in the psych ward. So like that's that was a lesson that, I mean, my friends tried to tell me, even though they didn't have any of that lived experience. But I, you know, I definitely took that with me when when we were looking for other places for Ryder. And and by the way, the place in Pasadena wasn't was far from perfect. I mean, there were there were some difficult experiences there. But I did have that. I did have the lesson from the earlier site board in mind, which was they're on your team. Again, you didn't choose this team, but this is the team you got. So treat them as your allies. I really love how you brought up that being co-parents and supporting together and how it's brought you closer. It's so important to emphasize that even through a divorce and divorced parents, the importance of co-parenting and showing up and supporting together, even when it's not comfortable, it's something that took my parents a long time. And I'm so grateful that they've gotten to this point because it has saved me so many times over. So mm-hmm. I really love that you brought that up because I just think people need to hear it that I know divorce can be so terrible and they're difficult and every situation is unique and different and also invalidate anyone's experience, but also being sure to show up for your kids and co-parents, especially with mental health. It is so, so important. And my parents could not do that until probably the last two years. And now if I'm having a crisis, they'll take me out for ice cream together. And those two showing up together, you put them in the same room anytime else, the world will end. But when I need them, they're there and it's made the world of difference in my mental health journey. So I really want to point that out. And then Ryder, I would love to know your experience and your perspective on that. Does having both parents show up and support together and having that communication help you? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it. Uh, what you just said about if they're in the same room together, the world is over. But then, I mean, literally, literally two nights ago, we were uh, watching a movie together, uh, which before I was diagnosed, you know, growing up as a, as a teenager after my parents divorced, I thought, oh, my God, I don't I never even thought that was like a thing. You could watch a movie with your divorced parents. Um, yeah, it has been amazing. You know, I, I could I could sit here and spew gratitude forever. But together, they are super, super powerful in terms of support and love and a lot more powerful than they were separate. And as great as they were, you know, and, and as great as they are individually, when they come together to help me and to help my sister. Uh, it's an, it's a really special thing. So it's very rare also, like really cool to hear Francesca that your parents have become a little like that, but it's very rare to get divorced. It is very rare. So Tim, like take a moment and celebrate how amazing you are. And Ryder, I hope you tell your mom to do the same because it makes the world of difference as someone who struggled. I just, anyone out there listening, like it really does make the world a difference, but do what you can with what you have available to you. Um, So now I really want to go back to Ryder and your experience. So when you got out of the psych ward, what was your mental health journey like from that point to when you began advocating? 2018 was monumentally horrible and hard for me and my family. Uh, After I got out of the Chinatown place, I went home I, again, was like, that's it for my life. I'm never going to do anything. And I, yeah, sat in the, sat in the dark uh, pretty much all day. Didn't know. The meds, you know, really hard. The med- psychiatric medication is no joke. And I advocated 
I advocate for it as much as possible because it did end up really helping me. But at the time, it was horrible. Uh, so then, yeah, I, I went into treatment. Um, the great thing about treatment for me, you know, 18, I was able to be with kids, 17, 18, 19, going through a lot of similar stuff, who were, had similar backgrounds, similar interests. And it was really amazing. But yeah, so I had another episode, I'm still in treatment, you know, really struggling. So eventually I have arranged to take a gap year between high school and college. And, you know, I'm kind of on the up and up. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll take this year. I'll really get my act together. I'll get better. And then I will go to college. Uh, but before, you know, I, I got a job. Um, but that job only lasted about a week before I had a third manic episode. Um, and this one landed me in the Pasadena place, the slightly better place, which, yeah, was really hard still. Uh, I did more treatment. I was very lucky enough to be, have been able to go to inpatient treatment. Uh, and for anybody that doesn't know, that's where you live with a bunch of people. You know, if you're a guy, you live with guys. If you're a girl, you live with girls. Um, and you do treatment from nine to five every single day, different groups and such. Uh, and that was really hard. You know, I'd never really lived away from home at all. And, you know, it actually did kind of help me prepare for college because it was way harder than college could ever be, you know, living in treatment. Uh, so I did a couple months of that and... And then I got out and, you know, I was feeling a little better. I definitely had a lot more tools for recovery at my disposal, but I didn't know where to go. I was sort of in um, purgatory. And then, you know, then comes my dad about January of 2019. And he says, bud, do you want to speak to a class, you know, speak to students, speak to parents about your experience? Uh, my first thought was no. No way. I, I think it might have been that. your second and third thought. Yeah, no. it might have been. You know, I might have given him that for a week because uh, I really didn't feel like sharing that story to strangers uh, at that point. Didn't really even want to share that story with people that I know. Um, but then I did one and another and another. And uh, the pre presentations, you know, having the chance to present to students and parents, but mostly students, has been the absolute silver lining of all this for me personally. Life brings you where you're meant to be. Ryder, your strength and your journey is absolutely incredible. I think so many people after just one manic episode or one hospitalization feel like life is never going to get better. And someone who's in that feeling right now and in that feeling of desperation, of hopelessness, of just kind of feeling like a failure to hear your story and know that I, I might have fallen down a couple times, gone through multiple manic episodes, gone through multiple ho hospitalizations, and yet look how where I am now. That inspires so much hope. So I just hope you honor how much hope and love and encouragement that you, by existing, by sharing your story, by coming on this podcast, are really giving to the world. And now, Tim, I want to jump over to you. And what was your experience like from the moment he got out of this psych ward? till the moment that you started or he started advocating. So through those times. Um, well, what, what happened pretty quickly, even while he was still in that first stay at the uh, psych ward in, in uh, Chinatown, we were told about NAMI. And NAMI stands for the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Uh, and it is, I think it's the greatest organization that most people have never heard of because they don't have to hear about it until they're in a crisis in their lives. 
And that is certainly one of the things that makes me, you, you know, I, I, I'm eager for people to know about NAMI before they need NAMI, right? Um, but thank God somebody suggested to both me and Ryder's mom separately that we go to NAMI. And so I, I remember going to support groups and, I, you know, again, feel, walking in and thinking my life was over and thinking everything that I held near and dear, my family and my son and everything was just done. And I saw like other parents who had kids, who had adult children who'd been living for years with their mental health conditions and they were laughing and they were, they were sort of making jokes and hand, and not like making fun of anybody, but they were able to carry their burden with grace and ease. And I was like, I was blown away, but it definitely kept me coming back. And then I took this class I was telling you about with Sharon Dunas and also Eddie Silverman, Cynthia Sirota, again, people who just made an incredible impact in my life at a tender time when I needed their support. They, it just kept me kind of heading towards hope rather than helplessness. And, you know, I was in a, also kind of a professional limbo at the, at the time. Um, I had been a TV writer and done a bunch of different things in my life uh, that I thought, frankly, after before I even got to the end of my NAMI class, I thought, you know, I might be able to help this organization in some way, you know, and I totally believed in its mission and values. I think I did realize, consciously or not, that advocating for Ryder and advocating for people like Ryder and advocating for other family members and loved ones it, 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 it helped, it helped me. And I saw it helping other people. And so that's, you know, so I started this job and I, you know, I found myself really looking forward to showing up. Every single hour I was working, I felt valuable. I felt like it was a valuable hour. And I saw that I could see the impact that those hours were making on our community. And so very quickly I got trained in this Ending the Silence program. That is the school program. And Francesca, I cannot wait for you to be part of this program as well. And I got, somebody encouraged me to get trained for this program. And the, the program has two speakers who go into schools talking to the students. One is the lead presenter who's got a PowerPoint, talks about warning signs and the range of mental health conditions that people experience and also talks about language right and talking about mental health condition rather than mental illness um, even though mental illness is in the name of our organization we're not saying that as much as we are mental health condition because it's less stigmatizing right and then the other presenter is a young youth peer presenter who talks to the who talks to the students about living with mental health conditions. So the lead presenter is a family member generally who has a loved one. And so I've learned to, I learned to tell my story and, and learn to kind of take ownership over my story and my part of my recovery as I was doing these presentations. And then I got to be incredibly inspired by the young presenters I was, I was working with. And yeah, very early on, as we started to, this program started to expand, I thought Ryder, I mean, he's a great storyteller. He comes from a long line of writers in his family, and I thought he, I thought he might enjoy it. And so I didn't take no for an answer. It's true. I was a little, I was a little relentless. And um, he eventually said, all right, you know, I'll give it a shot. And then I think he, he, he caught something. He got, you know, he caught a little bit of advocacy himself. And I think that, that like that is that is the magic that happens is like the kids, the students or the families or the staff, depending on which audience we're talking to, they see people advocating for themselves and advocating for their loved ones who are struggling. 
and it helps them become better friends to their friends who might be struggling. And more importantly, Ryder knows what I'm going to say, it helps them become better friends to themselves. And Francesca, I cannot wait for you to get to experience it and for the kids to get to experience you. They are they're going to be really blessed to have you in their midst. So Thank looking you. forward to that. I am so excited and I want to applaud you both for the advocacy and the work you do. And we are running out of time, but I want to wrap up with you guys talking about some of your favorite resources offered at NAMI. I know you talked about the training, but talk about some other resources you really love and how people can get involved with their local chapter. Uh, yes. So NAMI is a national organization. So NAMI Westside Los Angeles, right? That's the, that's the local affiliate that provides services, free services in our area. Um, NAMI has a wealth of opportunities for people who are looking to get involved and to have honest conversations. And, and Francesca, what you're doing with this podcast, I love that it's called Normalize the Conversation. That is certainly one of the missions of NAMI, is to make it easier for everybody to have these conversations. So whether you can help out volunteering at a table, you know, spreading awareness about mental health conditions, or you can sign up to be, or, you know, become a support group facilitator or a teacher of our classes. Really, my, my strong suggestion would be just go Google the local NAMI and see what they're up to. And even if you, even if you don't have a direct loved one, you know, with a mental health condition, my strong suspicion is that you know someone who does. And so it will be worth your while. There are just, there, honestly, it is, like I said, it's just one of the greatest organizations that I've ever come, come across in my life. doesn't mean everything is perfect and that, that there's not still some parts of the system that I'd like to see improve. It's an incredible organization and take my word for it because I am also volunteering and getting involved. So with all that being said, I know we need to wrap up, but Ryder, I want you to wrap us up and finish us off with the most powerful piece of advice you could offer to someone who is struggling? The most powerful piece of advice that I could give anybody going through any kind of mental health crisis. I'm, really, I'm trying to avoid cliche here. Every thought, you know, every thought I have, I've, I've heard a million times. But um, one thing that I would say and one thing that I try my hardest to remind myself is you are not alone. Um, I'm blessed with a really great family and really great friends, and I still feel super alone all the time, almost daily. Um, and no matter what you're going through, no matter who you have on your side, I know that you have somebody. And it might just be one person, might be two, might be ten, but you have someone who cares about you. And if you're going through it, they probably care about you more than you might care about yourself in that moment. So go to them. Uh, as hard as it might sound, go to somebody who you trust and you feel like they trust you and go to them and tell them about how you're feeling. Because for me, whenever I try and hide and whenever I try to push my feelings down and not tell anybody, I feel worse. And I think that's a pretty global experience. So you are not alone. That's, uh, that's what I'll say. That is Thank you so much for having us on, Francesca. Of course, that is amazing advice. I am so happy to have had you guys as guests today. Francesca, it was a real pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. And Ryder, thank you for ending it so beautifully. <laughs>